Good evening. You're listening to Heartstock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Dana Thomas, and uh, this is a, an especially wonderful episode as Dana is speaking with us from Paris. So, big deep breath, our first adventure overseas here, and uh, it couldn't be with better guests. So, I'd like to remind you that you can find us on Facebook. You can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Just a moment. Dana Thomas will be with us and tell us all about what she is up to. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Clark Grant is in the studio. And today our guest is Dana Thomas. She is an author and fashion editor at British Vogue. Dana, hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. Oh, it's a great pleasure. So this is your third book, if I'm correct. And yes. um I'm wondering if you can just give a little intro for our listeners and tell them a little bit about what drew you to fashion and your journalism in the field of fashion. Well, I, I became a journalist. I've always wanted to be a journalist. I knew since I was a kid that I wanted to be a journalist. We visited the Philadelphia Bulletin, which is a, a it was the evening paper for Philadelphia when I was a kid. And we visited when I was in um, Girl Scouts. And I thought this was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I wanted something that I wanted to be a part of it. So we had journalism class in high school and I took it and we went to visit the New York Times. And that's when I really knew that that's what I wanted to do. And we read all sorts of books by journalists like Tom Wicker and James Reston and Hunter S. Thompson about covering the campaign trail. And I thought, I want to be a political reporter. And then when I was 18, my father organized for me to be a fashion model to pay for my college education. And I was sent to Paris by my New York agency and fell in love with Paris and spent three years there making money to go back and get my journalism degree. But I always thought that fashion was sort of like a means to an end, the thing that I was going to do just so I could become the, the political writer I wanted to be. And I got back to Washington and went to university and landed a job very entry level at the Washington Post as a copy aide, as bottom of the rung as you can get in the newsroom, and worked my way up a bit. And that summer, um, that first summer, while I was I had just finished college, the fashion editor needed a new assistant. And she'd heard that there was this copy aide up in the on the national news desk who spoke French and had lived in Paris and worked as a model and knew how to say Givenchy and Yves Saint Laurent. And so she, ta <laughs> so she tapped me, you know, that, well, that was in, in, yes. in the newsroom where they, where they were still wearing suede patches on their, <laughs> on their, on their blazer Almost. elbows. Yeah. So, so, uh, and lots of tweed, there was still a lot of tweed in the newsroom back then. So <laughs> I, uh, I, she tapped me to work for her that summer and it just sort of seemed to click that I thought that fashion was like this individual thing that I'd done, you know, compartmentalized, that that was something that I'd done and it was finished and now I was going to be a journalist. And she showed me that you could write about fashion as a serious journalist, that in fact it was 
you know, it was as serious as politics and business. And in fact, it was in a sense, politics and business. And uh, not just about hem lengths and heel heights and whatever the new pink is, mm-hmm. especially in, in Washington, happily, you know, mm-hmm. where it, there wasn't much fashion sense, but yet there was fashion business, there was fashion politics, there was legislation that was the home of the, the, um, the trade associations and, you know, the footwear association, the apparel association, there was legislation, you know, things, regulation. So we would write about all sorts of things, not just fashion shows and, and trends. And it was really fascinating. And so I decided, well, this could work for me. And then I fell in love with a Frenchman and moved back to Paris. We met at a friend's wedding. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. I was writing about France and about culture and about, you know, all things as a beat reporter would covering France. But one of those things was fashion because it's one of the top four greatest, biggest industries in the country. There's agriculture, aeronautics, automobiles, and fashion. And so to be a serious reporter covering France, you needed to cover fashion. It was at a time when there were lots of mergers and acquisitions. So suddenly I found myself writing a lot of business stories for the Washington Post and then for Newsweek, where I, I joined the bureau in Paris. And, and then it just sort of evolved from there. And after 10 years of, of covering fashion, along with other things, I covered, you know, I was the cultural correspondent for Newsweek. So I covered opera and ballet and the Cannes and Venice film festivals and all the fun stuff I used to say. I realized I had enough on what had been happening in the fashion industry to put it together as a book. And that was my first book, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, which was about how the industry had moved in that 10 years I'd been covering it from small family-owned businesses to global publicly traded corporations. Yes. And that's it. Major big business, <laughs> indeed. Major big business. I'm I'm very curious and would love your inside view of being a fashion model. What was that like? Is it as glamorous as it's portrayed um, in magazines and, and media? Yes and no. I mean, there was... There was certainly glamorous times, lots of fun parties, lots of interesting travel to exotic locales I would have never gone to otherwise and still haven't been back to. You know, I went to Sri Lanka in 1985 before the Civil War. I went to uh, Cyprus, Greece, and uh, and I went to sort of, you know, like really, I got to stay in the Bahamas for a month. That was kind of fun. But at the same time, you know, there were, you were wearing fur in the summer and bikinis in the winter because you were shooting six months in advance. And so you'd be shivering or you'd be sweltering. You'd have hairdressers, you know, cooking your hair with the hair, with the hair dryers. You'd be exhausted from too much travel. You had lecherous photographers chasing after you and lecherous agents chasing after you. And you had to learn how to fend and lecherous playboys chasing after you. So you had to sort of learn to fend for yourself and, and fight them back. Um, and you know, it was, and, and it was, it was a time, you know, we think now, Oh, it must be really easy and great. But back then there was only one flight to Paris a day out of New York. And I lived in Philadelphia. So I had to take a van to Philadelphia for four hours to get on this plane and fly by myself, which was a little spooky. And you know, I'd have to wait for letters from my mother that came, you know, in dribs and drabs because, you know, we didn't have email. And if I wanted to ever call home, I had to go to the bank and get a roll of of five franc pieces and then find a phone booth that worked and then <laughs> drop them in like a slot machine, you know? So it was, it was, there were times where I was very lonely and it was very far away from home and it was very foreign, but it was, it, there were other moments where it was kind of great. It's, it's much different now. We live in a much more global society. The models are looked after far more. 
carefully. Um, you can't get away with the the bad behavior that that was that men you know put us on through when I was when I was doing this in the early eighties. I think there's less drugs in the scene as well. I mean, it was really bad in the eighties, but that was everywhere. And you had to really work hard to sort of keep your keep your sanity in a way that I don't think you have to anymore. In Fashionopolis, tell us what brought this on. Um, did you always know that this book was up and coming or what was the moment you knew you had to write it? Well, it was something that but I'd been noodling for some time and I actually started working on the proposal back in 2009 or 2010, but it just wasn't quite coming together. And then in 2011, John Galliano imploded at Christian Dior with his racist, anti-Semitic tirade, drunken at a cafe, and was fired. And I had covered John's career since the early days. And I saw that this was sadly a trend a year after McQueen's suicide and a few other cases of you know, nervous breakdowns by fashion designers and that the, the pace and the, the demand of the business was really just putting these designers on the precipice of, they were having mental breakdowns of various sorts. So mm-hmm. I decided to put this book aside and write that one, which was a double biography, Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, really looking at the war between art and commerce and the impact this was having on the creative side of the industry, the globalization of fashion. When that was done, that took a long time to do. That took five years to to finally finish and get out. I turned back to this book. And in that time, what wasn't working in the proposal was coming together better. That in fact, I realized that my idea was too early before and it needed that five years to catch up. Like I could see what was coming, but it hadn't come yet. And now it was starting to. But I, growing up in the 1970s, you know, where we had our student teachers were hippies. I remember very well the very first Earth Day and we planted a, a, a bunch of trees to make a forest and, and we'd have classes outside and then there was the whole consumer reports movement and don't let, you know, big business take you for a ride and that I've been always very aware of two different, you know, or three different ideas, one of them being, you know, Mother Nature and being, we used to say ecological and now it's, you know, environmentally aware with climate change, but back then it was just, you know, the ecology movement that really did, you know, I was at an impressionable age where it really made a profound difference in my, in the way I looked at the world. We always had an organic garden. We always, you know, were careful about waste and, and, uh, taking public transportation and doing things, you know, to make, to do, do right. And then for the, for the planet. And then also just all those consumer reports, kind of programs and think, and my parents got the magazine and don't buy a lemon, made me question big corporations, that they weren't perfect, that they weren't impenetrable, that they did actually snow us and sort of look at us like as suckers buying their products. And, you know, gave me kind of a, a skepticism towards business that, that, you know, really did stick with me. And then, you know, with my reporter's training at the Washington Post in the late 1980s, that really sort of helped those two ideas come together and and showed me how to pursue finding out if you're getting ripped off, seeing it when it's happening, when they are telling you, like, when they're, when they're greenwashing you or when they're trying to snow you with their corporate spin. These were all sort of things that were very deep inside me, and I just could see, I could see what was truly happening 
as a reporter in the business versus what they were telling you they were doing. And I thought, you know, we aren't that ignorant as consumers. We are actually as smart as they are and they shouldn't keep us in the dark. So I'm going to unveil all this and tell the consumer this is how it really is. So once you picked the book back up and started working on it again, how long before you actually finished it? It was actually three years from the time I got the contract to publication, two and a half years of writing and then and, and editing. And then there, you sort of have a quiet time when they're putting together the campaign and you're waiting for it to come out. And so the whole thing got put to bed two and a half years after I started working on it. And just like all aspects of business technologies having its huge impact on fashion. And I think it's kind of apropos, like you said, you had those five years of uh, technology kind of catching up and changes in the business catching up to what you saw coming down the pike. Did anything change in those five years as far as what you were writing about and the orientation of of the book? Well, yes, it was a bit of a moving target. Things were advancing very quickly. You know, the, a lot of the startups that I just, bear, you know, I mentioned as starting up then sort of came together or they were about to come together and get their, get their money and start, you know, commercializing what they were just trying, you know, they were piloting or, you know, setting up. Um, some of the things that I, when I started writing the book, didn't even exist. And by the time I was wrapping things up, I was like, oh, this is a really cool company I should spotlight. There was one I talked about, I gave it just one paragraph called Vidalia uh, Denim Mills that were just, you know, it just broken news that they were going to open this new denim factory in Vidalia, Louisiana, and they were going to pick up some of the machines from Cone Denim, which had just announced that it was closing. And I was like, I need to stick this in here, even if it's just a little mention, because I can feel that this is going to be a big thing. And sure enough, since then, now Vidalia Denim has become a very big and, and prosperous business in just 18 months. And they're using indigo from the woman I write about, who's the indigo farmer from Tennessee, and they're sourcing cotton from, you know. So it it kind of very quickly came together, and I thought, I need to drop this in there, even if it's only a paragraph, because this, you know, part of the title of the book is The Future of Fashion, and this company is obviously the future of fashion. Yes, and I'd love to talk more about that. There's so much information in your book about just what you're touching on there, as well as things that are coming down the pike technology-wise. So we're going to take our little midway break here in just a moment. We will be right back with Dana Thomas. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and today our guest is Dana Thomas. She is the author of Fashionopolis, as well as several other books. And we were just talking about sustainability and changes in the fashion industry. You were just, Dana, touching on reshoring. We've lost so much ability in the United States to produce anything, it seems, Can you tell us some more stories and 
I guess, reveal to our listeners what's happening in this regard in the United States. Well, yes, during the era of globalization in the mid-1990s, when the market really opened up because of the internet, but also because of trade agreements with countries like China and NAFTA, which we passed in the early 90s, manufacturing moved offshore and it moved offshore really fast. It moved to Mexico because of NAFTA. It moved to China because of the opening of the Chinese market. It moved to Southeast Asia because we could ship and, and have communications easily with the internet to places like Bangladesh and, and Vietnam, which just opened up its market after years. And, and we lifted the embargo with Vietnam. And so these jobs all moved offshore because, I mean, it was very simple. Say you're making a pair of blue jeans at a Levi's factory in America. As I write about in the book, you know, there was this lovely old factory in an Appalachian town in Georgia at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. And they closed that factory. But when they had it there, they had it there for decades and decades. Levi's contributed to the community. They paid their workers very well. They had benefits and paid vacation, you know, maternity leave. Levi's also contributed to the community, what we call corporate paternalism. They bought the new shelving for the local library. They paid for the, the lights at the high school stadium. They gave little gifts to the elderly in rest homes. They bought the jaws of life for the t- fire department. They sponsored the Little League baseball team. So, you know, they really did contribute financially to the community as well as paying the workers decently and giving them jobs. But then they found that they could manufacture in China and they didn't have to pay any of that, that they could pay the workers or elsewhere, Turkey or other places. They could pay the workers a fraction of what they were paying these unionized workers in America. Like when I say a fraction, they were paying them not even 10% of what they were paying in America. If the worker in America earned $20, the worker in China would be earning $2 an hour or less. And they didn't have to pay health benefits. They didn't have to pay vacation. They didn't have to pay maternity leaves. They didn't have to pay anything because they weren't even owning the factory. They weren't underwriting little league teams or buying spotlights for football fields. They didn't have to pay anything. They just had a contract where they paid the factory. Somebody else owned the factory and they just said, make these things for us and ship them back. And they could nickel and dime those contracts because those factories so desperately wanted the work. So all these jobs moved offshore. And that's when the profit margins of these companies went you know, sky high. And that's when you started seeing CEOs earning millions and millions of dollars because their their salaries were tied to the profit margins. You know, if the company was making gazillions in profits and the CEO got gazillions in, in salary and bonuses. So very few people got very rich. And meanwhile, the, the South of the United States, where much of our garment industry went into complete economic collapse because 98% of garment jobs went offshore in a decade. So only 2% of our clothes in America were made in America in the 1990s and early and to 2000s up to like the last five years ago. And that 2% pretty much was a handful of blue jeans, you know, some like artisan blue jeans and military uniforms because there is a law that states all military uniforms must be made in the United States, American military uniforms. And that was about it, you know, and, and some t-shirt factories in LA still churning out t-shirts for like concert t-shirts and stuff, super basic work. And, but many of those factories in LA were then staffed by immigrants from Mexico. They weren't 
And half the factories in LA, as I described in the book, are clandestine illegal workshops filled with immigrants who are off the books. Now, you can be anti-immigrant or pro-immigrant. The bad guys in this are the factory owners who are putting up these factories and paying these people $2 an hour. And they're so desperate for the work in a state where the minimum wage is $10 an hour and the federal minimum wage is $7.50. They're so desperate for work, they'll take it. Right. And, okay. and it's really just, a, it's, it's abuse by the factory owners more than anything else. And I recount some pretty horrible stories in the book about some of these clandestine American sweatshops and the brands that sourced from them and and contracted them. They're also the bad guys in this because they were putting made in the USA labels in their clothes because it was officially made in the USA and and passing it off as if they were made by union labor Mm -hmm. when they weren't. So how can we turn this around? Or is it turning around? I mean, obviously, your book is a powerful force in this regard. Do you see us waking up? I do. I do. And there's two things that have really pushed this wake up. First was, sadly and ironically, the the pandemic. Because when we were sitting at home... We everything slowed down, including our just mania for shopping. And then we started hearing, you know, we had more time to read and we were reading stories about how these companies were not paying their bills in Bangladesh and leaving people high and dry and hungry in Bangladesh and just general bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I wrote the book to to inform consumers so that they could make wise choices in their in their shopping habits. And then we have the pressure of Gen Z. And these kids, these kids are just fantastic. They're like, we just don't take no guff. You can't sexually harass us, we'll call you out. You can't rip us off, we'll call you out. You can't hurt the planet, we'll call you out. (laughs) We have no patience for any of this stuff. And they make a lot of noise with their addiction to social media. We were cursing it when they were little kids spending too much time on their phones, but now they're using it for the betterment of planet and humanity. And you see the change. It's happening daily. It's really quite remarkable. And in the book, you do talk about what's coming down the pipeline as far as technology and automation. How do you see this impacting us? Is it all robots taking over American jobs once again <laughs> or overseas jobs? <laughs> yes and no. First, there's two two things really happening that are great. The first one is that we're reshoring jobs. We're reshoring manufacturing. It turns out that after 15 or 20 years of manufacturing in China and in other countries, but particularly China, the cost of labor has gone up because the labor has gotten so skilled and they're forming unions and they're demanding better treatment, better wages and benefits. Good on them. So brands are now saying, well, if I have to pay $18 an hour for a Chinese worker to make my clothes, or I have to pay $18 an hour for an American laborer to pay make my clothes, and on the Chinese one, then I have to pay for the shipping and in America, it's already here. Maybe I'm just going to save money by making it here. And so There's also lots of, how do they put it? There's a terminology for it. Incentives. Uh, (laughs) Incentives being offered by local governments, for example, in the Carolinas, where if you build a factory or take an old, empty, a long abandoned factory, refit it with, you know, state-of-the-art new technology and hire local people to work in it and run it, 
they will give you tax breaks. They will give you money to, they will help you fix up the building. They will do all sorts of financial incentives so that you come and start businesses again in the Carolinas. And this is happening actually throughout the United States and in throughout the South in particular, where these factories have been sitting empty for 20 years. Now, I think that's a great thing because we would have, you know, think of yourself as a factory owner. Would you have ever stopped production to tear out all your machines and update them with really expensive new ones? No. But because we had this rupture where everything went offshore and then all those machines were, you know, carted out, either sold or scrapped, and the building's been sitting empty for 20 years, you can now come in and refit them with state-of-the-art robotic laser you know, technology, fantastic new stuff that's safer, cleaner, and and more efficient. Now, while you won't have 2,000 workers in that factory like you might have 30 years ago, you'll have 200 very well-trained and better paid workers because the work they're doing with this technology is a higher skill and therefore a higher pay grade. And they're being taught how to run sophisticated technology and machinery that they can take into other jobs later down the line. You also have management and you have people repairing the machines. So you are creating jobs. They're just different kinds of jobs. So that town might not have had any work there five years ago, and now there's 200 new jobs. 200 is better than none, right? And then you also have, you know, we, so we have reshoring, which is, I call it actually right shoring. And then you also, the robots are getting rid of the really crummy jobs. And so again, like I said, in, with the reshoring, right shoring movement, that the workers aren't sitting there hand sanding jeans. They're putting them in, in clean boxes and having lasers do the work. And they're running the machines sort of like running a video game with joysticks and having the lasers and the vacuum suck up all the dust rather than these poor people being paid pennies to work in sweltering heat, hand sanding and, and inhaling all the dust. So they're cleaner, safer jobs. Yes, there'll be fewer jobs, but more importantly, there'll be better jobs. But workers won't be forced to work overtime for free anymore. They won't have to work nights and weekends for free anymore because they have to keep up with all this work. That the robots will be doing it and they'll be running the robots instead. It's a much more sane way of working. And you were talking a little earlier, we've got about, oh, three minutes left here. Can we give any additional shout outs to companies who are doing it right? Maybe a well-established company who's turning their production around and an up-and-coming company? Well, an established one would be Levi's. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked about Levi's offshoring and they went through this really dark period where they laid off 25,000 American workers in a matter of six years. Wow. And meanwhile, the CEO who did that then retired and had a $2 million pension every year for, for several years. So they went through a very bad time where they just really dropped their compass, their moral compass, which they had had, you know, a moral compass. That company was one of the most morally correct companies Ever. It had started as originally as the most sustainable garment, the blue jeans. They were supposed to last you forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've come back around. And so they're reshoring and reopening factories in the United States. They're adopting technology like laser distressing. They're using regenerated cotton so that they're re, you know, bringing old garments and regenerating them and br- making new cotton out of it. So they're you're making it more circular. They're using natural indigo and not just synthetic indigo. They're embracing all this cool technology of the startups that I spotlight in the book and really going forward in a nice, bright, clean, and healthy way. 
They're doing very well. And you know what? Their stock market, their, their stock has gone up because it's working. Yeah. <laughs> and it, that's a, a little known fact that um, the more sustainable a company becomes, the more profitable over the long term. How It's good business. It it's is. just good business. It, it There's less waste. Sense. It's good yep. business. Yep. So how might listeners find you, Dana? Well, I have my website, danathomas.com, and I'm on Instagram at Dana Thomas Paris, Twitter at Dana Thomas Paris. So all three of those. And there's a click through on my website to an email. So, you know, you can just drop me a line. Mm-hmm. I wish you a beautiful day in uh, hopefully sunny spring Paris. It is. <laughs> April in Paris. Indeedy. And thank you so much for being our guest on Heartstock. My pleasure. Anytime. And we will be back, as usual, next week. This is Carol Murphy, your host. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. California.